We're at a really interesting stage with the grains industry in terms of whether we can develop the industry into a much more value-add industry rather than just an export producer. We need all sources of protein. We need sustainable animal protein as well as sustainable plant protein. Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On, a podcast that takes its cue from big picture, healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in Australia. I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Richard and I spoke at the end of October as what looks set to be a bumper harvest got underway. Since then, massive rains have had severe impacts on many grain growers. So we just wanted to acknowledge that and send our very best to everyone in the grain sector in tough times. I'm speaking with Richard Heath, who is the Executive Director of the Australian Farm Institute and is also a Director of the Australian Grains Research and Development Corporation. Welcome, Richard. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Anthea. Looking forward to the discussion. And it's all about grains, current and future horizons, and with regard to climate change and other healthy, sustainable food drivers, that together are creating big challenges and really big opportunities for Australian producers and eaters. Richard, can you tell us about the Australian Farm Institute, how and why it got going and about what it does? The Australian Farm Institute uh, was established about 17 years ago now and it stemmed from one of the the state farming organisations, advocacy groups, uh, New South Wales Farmers Association, realising that they needed some really good, robust, credible evidence to support the the development of policy positions that they would take forward and advocate for. And when they looked around to see where they might get that research done, they realised that at that stage there wasn't an agriculturally specific, independent policy research organisation. So they decided to establish one. And with a lot of foresight um, and forward thinking at the time, they realised that uh, if it was to be credible, it couldn't just be seen to be the policy arm of an advocacy organisation. It had to be genuinely independent with appropriate governance and with a business model uh, that would evolve to the point where it didn't become dependent on that original funder uh, being an advocacy organisation. So with excellent management and governance from uh, well before my time, it did succeed in uh, building that reputation through the robust evidence that um, and, and research that it did uh, and attracted uh, members and, and other funding to the point now where it is a, a self-sustaining uh, independent business. We have a really wide stakeholder base in terms of our membership that runs um, through the supply chain and across all the different sectors in Australian ag. Um, And so it's really sort of pleasing to see over time uh, how it's been embraced by the agricultural industry. I first came across uh, across AFI via a Farmers for Climate Action webinar that was all about in which one of your reports about land use conflict and farmers' mental health was, uh, was a key part of the presentation. I thought that was fascinating. So you've been with the AFI for over five years or so, and prior to that, 
were the director of Nuffield Australia Farming Scholars for six years. So you've got this incredible depth of experience and insight into the farming sector. Big picture, how do you feel we're we're currently travelling on research and outreach that needs to be done for our farmers and food producers, perhaps through the lens of social and economic change or even upheaval post-COVID, net zero targets and more? Most of my life, and and, I think this is what still defines me uh, to a great extent in terms of the way that I think about issues and, um, you know, assess the impact of R&D and so on. Um, I have been a farmer. So uh, when I left the university, I um, entered the family farming business on the Liverpool Plains near Canada in northwest New South Wales. And I was in that business for 20 years uh, before we sold the farm. And then I've had various roles since then, including, um, you know, on the board of, of Nuffield, as you uh, referenced. I've, I've been a farmer at the coalface of seeing how R&D impacted on productivity and seeing how new practice would come through and help with uh, building resilience, with uh, growing productivity and just continuing to improve the industry. With that context, what I see and I think, to be honest, is often underappreciated is just how significant and important R&D outcomes and practice change has been to maintaining the grains industry in Australia. The extreme droughts that we've had um, in the last um, you know, five years or so, the last couple of seasons have been very, very good, but previous to that, and there are some areas that are still you know, experiencing drought to some, to some extent, even in my farming lifetime, which isn't that long, if if we'd have had those droughts early on in that period, so when I first started farming, we would not have harvested a grain. You know, we just the, the droughts were so severe that uh, the, it, it would have limited production to the point where essentially it was an uneconomic harvest. But you look at the production that has come out of the grain sector through these droughts in the last few years and while there's certainly been uh, a drop in production um, there's still been significant national crops produced and really quite amazing yields for the rain that has fallen Um, and that is absolutely 100% a result of improved practice, improved understanding of how to to build climate resilient agriculture so that we can make the most of the soils, of the rain, of the environment uh, that we're farming in. Um, And it's been nothing short of outstanding, the, the, the progress that has been made. Very much about communities of practice often where farmers lead and then work with the research and development sector and vice versa. I know. The AFI's latest policy journal is uh, whether agricultural adv- advocacy is future fit. Are there particular insights from that that you personally perhaps would like to highlight, perhaps in the context of today's conversation about grains? Um, look, advocacy is a, in any industry, and probably even, even more so in agriculture, is always a hot topic of conversation. 
Um, I've been involved in advocacy organisations my whole life as well when I was farming. Um, you know, I was uh, in, involved in New South Wales Farmers Association and other advocacy organisations. You know, advocacy is about putting forward ideas and trying to influence um, decision makers to make sure that your voice is being heard and that, you know, decisions are being made to, to benefit um, the your, your circumstance and the industry circumstance that you're in. Now, what makes agricultural advocacy so interesting is that agriculture is an incredibly broad church and an increasingly broad church. And, you know, the, this idea perhaps that is, you know, perhaps there's still to a little extent that uh, all farmers are the same, that there's sort of this idyllic notion of the family farm and, you know, pastoral sort of scenes and uh, we're all after the same thing. Um, that is so far from the truth these days. Uh, and it's one of the things that really excites me about agriculture uh, and I think makes it an exciting space to be in that from the largest, you know, multi um, billion dollar corporate farms down to the uh, farmer's market supplier that's doing biodynamic organic produce and everything in between, um, they're all valid and they're all exciting business models and they all provide opportunity. But you could imagine that they all have different ideas about appropriate policy, about their advocacy needs, about what can be taken forward. And so the advocacy effort around that and the idea that we have organisations that can adequately represent the all of those models and, and, and take forward a position, um, yeah, it's a challenging environment and um, I think one that's only going to get more challenging as agriculture continues to become less homogenised um, and more diverse. One of the things that um, agricultural advocacy has struggled a little bit with over time is there's been this perception that the best way to take agriculture forward is the idea of having a single voice. Now, I'm not an advocate for that um, because of what I just talked about. Um, I think that part of the strength of agriculture is its diversity and we shouldn't expect that there's a single voice uh, all the time. Um, there, there, there is different ways of doing things and you know, it's not that one way is wrong compared to another way. It's it's an opportunity. And so that that does create a challenge about how we have different voices on the same team, different players on the same team, different positions that together can uh, advocate for and take the entire industry forward while still advancing the, the interests and, and protecting um, the, the, the interests of all the different players within the industry. Mm. And increasingly uh, different and new generations very actively in farming uh, and across a whole uh, spectrum of value frames. And I understand you and AFI colleagues were responsible for a major report prepared for AgriFutures, the changing landscape of protein production, opportunities and challenges for Australian agriculture. It was published in early 2020, and in many ways it was really uh, ahead of the game. It, it was a, a really important report that preceded the establishment of Food Frontier in 2021, which is a think tank on alternative proteins for Australia and New Zealand. And that place is now also the secretariat of the Alternative Proteins Council. Such a huge and fast-moving space. Let's talk now about our grain sector, uh, the here now and on the horizon for it perhaps, you know, through the lenses of climate change, healthy food and nutrition, and the changing face of and demand for protein. 
As we speak, many farmers are already or are about to head into harvest. And if hail and rains hold off, it looks set to be a good harvest this year, I think. Uh, the second good season after the recent very severe drought that you've already referred to. Um, and hopefully this year's mouse plague hasn't hit farmers too much or, or has it? Do you, do you have an insight on that, Richard? Uh, it appears that there's minimal damage at this stage from the early reports that I'm hearing um, uh, coming in. So, you know, fingers crossed that that continues to be the case. That's, that's good news. Can we kick off by spending some time talking about the broad production and export picture or the canvas in which Australian grain production currently sits and plays? Sure. So, um, look, as, as you've said, we're heading now for what appears to be the second um, huge production year in a row, which really highlights after the, the droughts of the previous few years, which I'd talked about um, previously, the, the 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 big problem with Australian production, the biggest problem that we've always had, is is the climate variability um, that we face. Uh, the the extremes of of production, um, and what that means for the national crop. Um, when we have a, a good year, we're an extremely significant producer and exporter um, on on the world stage. Uh, when we have a poor year. Um, particularly on the on the east coast, our domestic demand uh, takes up almost everything that we grow. And in fact, um, in some of the severe drought years recently, we've been uh, importing grain to the east coast from the west coast um, of Australia. So you know that that sort of shows the, the variability that we have. The prospects for grain, though, you know, the export demand and the potential for the industry continues to grow. Uh, there, there is incredible opportunity for the grains industry in Australia, not the least of which is the changing uh, product uh, categories and particularly around um, protein production, um, but also, uh, and you know, I was going to say ironically, I mean, you know, it's almost counter to the sort of protein production um, for, for animal feed because, uh, you know, animal protein will still be very significant going forward and there will still need to be um, a large amount of animal protein produced. Um, and so grains for, for the production of animal protein as well as grains just for the production of protein, um, there's just, just massive demand growth uh, across the board for all these categories. When we talk about grain production and the sector overall, does wheat, does wheat still pretty much dominate the cropping and export scene? It does. Yes. And with regard to, say, wheat and other grains grains we export, what's the picture or the key trend in how the grain we produce is generally consumed? And perhaps uh, things like um, shot and sprung wheat and all the other grain crops that are fed to animals. I'm interested to know how much of the wheat we export is consumed, is generally consumed by humans, high-quality millable grain. How much of the grain we export goes to feedlots, particularly intensive feedlots and things like that, because it's all part of the of mapping out the protein picture. Yeah, sure. So, look, a minimal amount of the grain that we export is specifically exported for animal feed, but there is a forecast going forward that that uh, will be there will be increasing demand for um, exported grain for animal feed. You, you referenced the um, shot and sprung or, or you know lower quality grain heading for those targets. What what's interesting is that as the animal feed sector becomes 
significant in its own right, particularly as an export industry rather than just a domestic industry. Um, the varieties that might be grown and targeted towards that, that are just um, high yielding, you know, much higher yielding uh, varieties that aren't aiming at particular quality targets, um, there will be a signal to grow those rather than the uh, slightly lower yielding, higher quality uh, wheats that are specifically designed for bread or noodle or, you know, human consumption. Is that best use of our natural environment in terms of food systems? Well, look, that's a really good question. Um, it's an ongoing debate about, uh, you know, whether we use uh, grains for animal protein production. Now, it's, you know, I, I get annoyed with other people when they answer like this, but I'm going to use the same answer. The answer is complex because genuinely it is complex. There are so many um, factors that you have to consider in terms of uh, the carbon footprint, in terms of the energy balance, in terms of water use, um, that it is almost impossible to make a blanket statement. Of course, and, and the nutrition security of the end consumer yeah. and that export of grain if it's going to small farmers and other sustainable forms of production of animal-based protein, like chickens, pigs, whatever it might be, and cattle. Exactly. I suppose what I was flagging is that that, that nuance around large-scale feedlots, which, of course, is uh, understandably where a lot of the pushback against meat-based protein comes from. There's no question that there are some, definitely, some horribly inefficient, polluting um, uh, environments for um, animal protein production from grain. But, and I really make this really clear, there are also some very efficient, um, much better resource use efficiency uh, uses of grain in animal protein production as well, particularly as the technology gets better and particularly as we start looking at things like feed supplements that are much easier to introduce into confined feeding situations rather than rangelands where, you know, there's some amazing um, research being done where um, enteric methane production, you know, is reduced by over 90%. Um, in, in feedlot supplements. Um, and, you know, when you start looking at that, then uh, the, the methane production from cattle um, and reducing the environmental footprint may well be actually easier to do in a feedlot situation than in grass. But again, you know, there's so many factors that you've got to sort of consider against each other. And, and animal welfare. And, and animal welfare, you know, how where the feedlot is, the, the conditions that the animals are in under the feedlot. You know, I, I guess if I had to summarise all of that into uh, is it the best use of, of grain or not, I, I guess I'd just say the feedlot industry absolutely has a future and absolutely is part of the food security uh, solution. But, you know, as with anything, it's got to be done right. Um, if it's done right and responsibly, um, and sustainably, it should be part of the um, of the future. In terms of our big agricultural food exports and their contribution to helping meet growing protein demand and consumption, the, what, what's the what's the, what's your take on the indicative picture of the relative importance of meat and livestock exports in comparison to our main grain exports? So look. Both industries are really significant for Australian exports um, and will continue to be. 
really, you know, I, I don't know, to be honest. I mean, they sort of have flipped over the last couple of decades in terms of which one's been more valuable, whether it's been meat or grains as the export sector. Uh, recently, it's been meat um, more because just the price of, of red meat has uh, become so high. The actual production has declined through the droughts um, and so on, and the and the herd um, has, overall herd has been reduced, but the price of meat has got so high that the value of exports um uh, in recent times, the, the meat industry has been higher. So in, in terms of the, the ongoing significance of each sector, we're at a really interesting stage with the grains industry in terms of um, whether we can develop the industry into a much more value-add industry rather than just an export um, producer. Now, the meat industry is trying to do the same thing, obviously, and there are still opportunities in the meat industry in terms of uh, packaging up products and, you know, that value adding. It, the grains industry is, you know, really not really value, not, not value add at all, really, as an export export commodity. Um, but when we start to look at um, some of the new uh, protein products yeah. and, you know, a whole range of products uh, derived from grains, the opportunity to to value add onshore um, and ex and export higher value products, I think that you know there is a lot of effort and a lot of understanding about the potential that is there in the grains industry. Now, what has held that up in the past, to some extent, has been the cost of value adding um, onshore. So, energy costs, labour costs. We're hopeful that the understanding of the potential of renewable energy in Australia, and particularly in the regions. Um, and some of the new spending initiatives and government initiatives around things like the Modern Manufacturing Initiative that are really focused on uh, building manufacturing capacity, particularly in the regions, starts to change that equation a little bit in terms of the competitiveness of value-adding onshore. And, you know, if that really starts to happen, then I think you'll see a big shift in terms of the, the types of grain products that um, that get exported and more of the high value add rather than just the, the commodity production. And relating to this section, which was to, to, to ask you a little bit of a backcast from 2050 first, mm. which was what protein do you imagine you and your grandchildren or other young people might be loving on the barbecue in 2050? Um, I think there'll be more of a mix than we have now, that's for sure. I think they'll, which is great, you know, there'll be, there'll be more diverse options. Um, I think we'll still be eating meat. We already, to be honest, eat a little bit less just in my family, um, a little bit less red meat than we used to, um, and that's for a whole range of reasons, just, um, you know, health outcomes. But uh, we still love our red meat and we're still always going to eat red meat. We were probably just eating a bit too much of it <laughs> before, to be honest. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, that, you know, there'll be a diverse range of options. The uh, One of the things, and I don't know if you sort of want to get into this now, but but one of the things that has really been intriguing me recently with the whole range of protein options is the the rapid development of products which try to emulate meat out of plant proteins now personally i don't get that i don't understand that you know you eat meat or you eat plant protein there's nothing wrong with eating plant protein why don't you just eat and why not just call it plant protein plant protein or you know <laughs> whatever um because the at the end of the day, the um, the, the the energy, the process, the amount of processing, um, the the environmental footprint that goes into trying to make plant protein taste like animal protein, generally, you know, it, and, and, and this is a generalisation. I'm not going to, you know, there are some that do a lot better than others, 
but as a generalization, um, you are putting a whole lot of processes in there that don't need to be in there from an environmental footprint point of view, just to make something taste like meat when you could just eat meat. Um, and, and if you don't want to eat meat for whatever reason, whether it's environmental or health or whatever, then eat plants. Thank you for that, Richard. We could talk about that for hours and dig into the whole question about how ultra-processed uh, it is from an environmental footprint and also from a health perspective, but we'll hold that thought. <laughs> um, just just for listeners uh, to to help paint the picture, ABARE's 2021 snapshot of Australian agriculture for 2019 to the early 2020s indicates that the value of agricultural production by sector, and Richard's alluded to meat exports have gone down in quantity but up in value, but wheat pulses and other crops represent some 23% of the value in that period, with wheat certainly being the largest, and meat and other livestock products represent 51%. So, you know, just reinforces a lot of what you've said there, Richard, so I just thought a nice summary. Yes, yeah. And you've alluded to that there is a shift under the, underway with regard to the production and export outlook for pulses and lentils and uh, legumes. That, that, that's right, isn't it? Sure, yeah. What's the indicative current profile of who our grain producers are? You know, in broad brushstrokes, the structure of the industry changes within it, observations, trends that you're aware of. Who's involved in the industry? So... Family farms still dominate Australian agriculture, but perhaps uh, the the picture of the average of what a family farm is, is changing. Um, And a lot of family farms now are large. Um, They're essentially, you know, family corporates, um, extremely professionally run, very large scale. And that's really been driven by the fact that um, productivity improvement really has been derived from scale improvement um, in the Australian grains industry. There is also um, a significant entry of of, um, of true corporates, um, of external investment, of foreign investment. Um, it's quite interesting the value in Australian agriculture that um, foreign superannuation funds see compared to Australian superannuation funds. Now, you know, there's a whole lot of reasons around that that I could go into. Um, it's not necessarily just an appreciation of the value, but a lot of other things, constraints around uh, the way that superannuation funds have to report in Australia compared to um, overseas, risk profiles, all those sorts of things. But basically the, the, the short story at the end of the day is that um, Australian agriculture and, and particularly a lot of Australian um, uh, farming country is seen as a very safe, very um, you know, secure uh, and high-returning long-term investment for uh, particularly North American superannuation funds. And so there's been quite a, a significant entry from that. And then at the other end of the scale, um, there is still opportunity for um, quite, you know, uh, smaller boutique niche growers that, um, uh, you know, look, look for a particular market opportunity that differentiate their product. You know, there, there is quite a lot of opportunity there for, for those people that have that sort of skill and that sort of mindset uh, and more of that sort of marketing understanding to be able to build a product. It is getting harder uh, and this is perhaps where there has been concern and commentary around the middle, the, you know, the hollowing out of the middle, the, the, that average sort of family farm, um, perhaps uh, one one person and their family uh, operating at a at a medium scale, it's difficult. There's no question that it's difficult. And those are the farms that have traditionally 
provided the population, provided the community, provided the, you know, they're the ones that have run the football clubs and um, the netball clubs and sustained the country towns. Uh, and they're, they're, that's a harder business model these days to sustain. And you get into a very, well, it's really quite a philosophical discussion about whether there is a public good imperative to provide the sort of support that might maintain those farms because we don't do it for any other industry. But there is this perception um, out there that, that is a, it, is a, it is different for farming. And it's such a part of our history and some, you know, soldier settler blocks, yeoman farmers and all the rest are growing fantasies. But also it's also really important potentially for uh, land stewardship and, you know, mixed mixed use farming and mixed regional and rural communities, isn't it? So, look, that's where it gets really interesting and, again, complex and difficult and it's hard to make a blanket assertion there because it's very difficult from a financial viability point of view for those farms. You have to be financially secure to deliver environmental outcomes. You know, it, it's a it's an oft used and, and saying you can't be green if you're in the red um, and it's a bit trite, but it is true. You know, you, you, you cannot a lot of the time afford to do those long-term sustainable environmental outcomes if you're going broke. And so um, that's actually one of the advantages that some of these much bigger corporates have is they have the patient capital, they have the resources. And increasingly, and and really significantly in a in a big shift now in terms of the investment environment, they have the investor pressure to deliver sustainability outcomes. Um, the holders of the superannuation funds, the um, the um, you know the, the the investors in in other companies that are investing in ag, they are demanding and expecting environmental outcomes. And so the, the pressure on those corporate farms to, to actually deliver, not just greenwash, you know, to, to actually deliver environmental outcomes and, and not, not just biophysical environmental outcomes, but the full suite of sustainability outputs, so community outputs um, um, and, and all the ESG outcomes, is, is, it's, it's significant and it's true. And, and there's a lot of effort going around that now. But I recently interviewed um, Gabby Chan about her book and uh, and I right. she spoke with you and a lot of what you say resonates and Noda, you know, fed into that book, resonates with what she she, she talks about and and, um, and how she talks about the complexity of the issues and so on. Um, just for listeners, what, what I've reiterating, what, what, what Richard has said in terms of some of the trends and the structure and change in the industry, ABARES says that uh, high revenue farms now account for one-fifth of the broadacre population, but for two-thirds of land income and output, with a high revenue farm defined as one with receipts over a million dollars. So, that's kind of a useful picture as well. Richard, you've sort of touched on this a lot already, but I just thought it's nice yep. to, to reiterate perhaps through a different lens. Can, can you tell us about, you know, what you see as the average experience of grain growers over the past 20 years or so? Now, I know that's a huge simplification of a question because who's the average farmer? But um, perhaps in terms of seasonal changes, impacts on farm profits, a sense of what it looks and feels like to be a small to medium uh, cropping or mixed broadacre farm. And I suppose I'm drawing this question a bit from a Guardian article that's on your AFI website uh, from mid this year that talks about income reductions directly due to climate. 
Sure. So um, a big difference between the the farmers that are, um, you know, you, you talked before about the differentiation between farms that are over a million dollars and, and those that are under. The, the, the farms that are, I would say, you know, I'd characterise them as professionally run that are taking up R&D and changing practice and using the most recent varieties and the most recent um, uh, and, and best practice. What has been really interesting, and I sort of referred to this briefly at the beginning of our chat, is that over the last 20 years, I think every farmer would say that the environment that they've farmed in has become more variable and more extreme. There's been frost events that have been really impactful. There's been heat waves that have been really impactful. There's been extreme droughts and there's been extreme floods. And the frequency of those things happening um, is increasing and there is less time between extreme events. So in the past, um, without a lot of government support, without um, widespread crop insurance programs, the sorts of financial support arrangements that a lot of our competitors have, as a real very broad generalisation, the business model was you just built equity to the point where you could then call on that equity to get through the next extreme event. And between those extreme events, you had a run of um, enough reasonable seasons that you could build the equity back up again. That's been challenged now because the diff, you know, the, the amount of time between the extreme seasons is getting shorter, um, and so uh, you know it, it's more difficult to, to maintain that equity. But, and, and this is the the really significant change. So while the environmental uh, variability has been much more extreme, the production output has been less so because of the adoption of all these new practices and understanding about how to deal with that production environment. So as I talked about earlier on, you know, it is just astounding how well and how much improvement there has been for the professional operators in terms of still being able to uh, grow some sort of crop and get some sort of output in, in environmental circumstances, which are really extreme. Yeah. And, and for the average small farmer, I think that Guardian article refers to sort of, you know, climate crisis reducing annual average farm profits by some 23% or 30,000 a farm. But, okay, but thank you for that. Um, grains and the people who produce them are just so important to our communities and economy and obviously the structure of those producers, the, the picture of the structure is changing and uh, looks set to change more. Grains are essential foods, integral to food and nutrition security and, pro- and the protein they offer is key not only to good nutrition but increasingly being understood uh, as key to combating the pandemics of diabetes and obesity. And I'm thinking of books like Eat Like the Animals where the protein leverage hypothesis and fascinating things like that. Many factors determine the best source and type of protein for different diets and what's best changes over a person's lifetime, age, gender and uh, subject to income, access and food food traditions, which is to say meat and plants are integral to we humans as omnivores. For many people, the nutrients and protein that can be accessed from plant-based foods, including wheat, are really, really key. But climate change and increased atmospheric CO2 levels is impacting both on yields and on the nutrient profiles of many staples. 
protein, iron, zinc, macro and micronutrients. Would you like to talk about that a little bit now, Richard? Sure. So, and look, I think it's really important to understand just how much of an impact that climate change has had already on um, grain production in Australia. And, and, and nutrient profile. Nutrient profile, uh, not, I haven't got the the data on that, um, but uh, the, the data on, on yields is now uh, really quite dramatic and I think is, un, again, underappreciated that um, CSIRO basically measured that, uh, I, I guess the best way to explain it is that if we were farming today in the climate um, of 1990, we would have yields increased by 27%. That's huge, isn't it? Through, through variety improvement. Now, um, you know, we, we've had a, a small productivity gain over that period through, um, uh, through yield increase, but most of it has just been keeping pace with the climate impact um, on, uh, that, that is negative towards or, Brand new. This question of nutrient profiles, and I've deliberately sort of put that in because oh. in the food sector generally there is a sense that we need more current and up-to-date fine-grained nutrition profiling of the foods we're currently producing and how it relates to different systems of production, but I'll just leave that hanging out yeah. there. In Australia, also really interesting, the trends towards plant-based diets, obviously a huge part of the whole healthy sustainable food system, climate change food citizen, food consumer changes. In Australia alone, people choosing to eat almost all vegetarian foods rose from some 9.7% in 2012 to now I understand it's around some 13%. We know whole foods are key to good health and that cereals are the largest source of protein per capita for the least and other developing countries and that many of those are the countries that we export to, so that's super important. Broadacre farmers are contributed to contributors to and living on the front line of climate change and its impact. And many people, I reckon, really want to under, really want to better understand and to support farmers to grow food profitably, as well as to care for their farms and to act on climate. And, you know, we can see from the current debates that many, many farmers are pretty keen and are already doing just that. The GRDC's Research Development and Extension Plan, that's all about helping Australian grain growers achieve greater profitability. And it's germane uh, to, Richard, what you've been talking about, the importance of R&D enabling the productivity and product profitability that farmers have been able to maintain. GRDC, obviously, are a key research and extension organisation, and no doubt they work really closely with CSIRO and other key groups in the country. And CSIRO have just recently launched uh, new missions that include the drought resilience mission and the future proteins mission did other other key players in the big research development and extension space that you'd just like to flag so one of the 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 key um providers of ag research that have always been really significant are the state departments of agriculture yeah um you know they're they're very significant um performers of research employers of of and developers of um, research capability and capacity um, and they're really important partners uh, in the R&D environment. But, yeah, as you said, universities as well. Um, and, you know, there's a whole lot of, of an increasing number of, of private providers of, of R&D uh, as, as well, corporate uh, organisations um, and small startups as well coming into the space. So it's quite, quite a diverse and, and vibrant area, which is really good to see. And a growing ecosystem, and it's good to see that we've got a national soil strategy happening again uh, with 
lots more um, employment of, I don't know, 60 or 70 more officers across the landscape. So that's that's exciting. Richard, you've already covered or alluded to a lot of the big challenges related to climate and sustainability uh, pressures that are that farmers are contending with, grain producers are contending with. Um, with your AFI hat on, <laughs> would you like to further elaborate on what you see as the really high order climate and sustainability challenges that grain producers are, are contending with, further to heat, flood, floods, extreme events, et cetera, et cetera? Um, so, look, I'll talk just more, more broadly about the sustainability imperative and um, the way that the environment is developing and what the signals are and, and how the grains industry deals with that. The grains industry, like all of agriculture, is hugely susceptible to ongoing climate impact. Uh, it is also, and as it would be hard to escape at the moment in the media, a potential uh, solutions provider uh, to climate change. Uh, there is an awful lot that, that agriculture can do to help mitigate the, the, the effects of climate change. Part of the plan, if you want to call it that, uh, that was uh, released by our federal government in terms of how um, they would get to uh, net zero by 2050. In fact, a very significant part is uh, soil carbon sequestration and, and offsets. Um, and uh, that has been a real focus for the uh, grains industry recently in understanding just what that potential actually is. Is it real? And I'm genuinely quite concerned that the opportunity is being overhyped. Depends on water. It depends on water. It depends on so many factors. Again, we get to that you know, word complex. I don't want to take away for one second the importance of soil carbon. Soil carbon is incredibly important. Soil carbon is, is a huge reason why this resilience I've talked about and this incredible um, improved performance in the ability to still produce crops when we're having really variable climate and droughts is because of a better understanding about soil carbon and change practices that build uh, soil organic matter, including soil carbon in soil. So farmers are aware of that and they're doing as much as they can in the way they grow crops to make sure that they are building soil organic matter and preserving um, soil carbon. So, but that is a very different thing to the idea that we are going to continuously and through trading mechanisms be rewarded for building additional soil carbon every year reliably. And that is where the nuance sort of gets lost a little bit because all you've got to do is have a three or four year drought, other extreme events, and you basically lose that carbon that, that you've stored. And so the security of soil carbon sequestration in current grain farming systems is the issue in terms of whether that is going to be a reliable part of the story of um, reducing atmospheric CO2, you know, that we can pull it out of the atmosphere into soil carbon in the cropping systems reliably year after year. Now, we can do it if we, if we turn all the cropping systems into trees, but then we lose our crops. Other, other corridors and landscape connections and uh, connections. Exactly, right? So, so land use change, 
Yeah, 100%. If, if we go out of those sort of annual cropping systems into uh, perennial pastures or into other permanent vegetation, perennial vegetation of some kind, then you start locking that carbon away um, long term. And, but you get to a point where if, you know, if that's the only way that we can do it, then, you know, we do start to have a have an impact on productivity and our continuing ability to produce the, 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 the plants, plant protein and, and grains that we need. So that's the big challenge for me that I see. How do we actually, how do we build, um, how do we turn the focus on soil carbon, which is there already, and, and continue to adapt practices, um, varieties, systems, so that we can start locking some of that carbon away for a longer term, for longer periods. And there's a lot of science, there's a lot of R&D, there's a lot of effort going in, into doing that. While I'm concerned about the a lot, a lot of the perception that's out there that it's going to be really easy and, you know, we've got some of the numbers that get thrown about about how much soil carbon we'll be able to sequester are just, you know, completely over the top. That what the, the benefit of that though is that it is attracting a huge amount of investment. The the idea that there's this potential there is is means that there's a whole lot of innovation going on, um, funded by uh, technology investment, um, you know, even sort of venture capital type investment, sort of looking at what the opportunity might be. So the pace of change. Uh, is is huge. Uh, there is so much going on at the moment. Um, I would like, you know, I'm a, I'm a believer in in technology and progress, and you know, I'd like to think that that me means that we will find an answer and we will work out how to do it. So uh, while it's a challenge, I think that the opportunity is 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 there for us to if we can just work out, you know, how to how to do it, how to get that long term locking away of carbon in cropping systems without reducing our cropping productivity too much, um, that's that's the big challenge. And it kind of goes to another question around strategic selection of crops, doesn't it? I mean, a lot of the research is focusing on getting more, improving nitrogen and phosphorus availability in the soil and doing it more sustainably. Um, obviously, nitrogen and fertilisers, big issue in broadacre cropping <laughs> when it comes to climate uh, emissions. And, and, and clearly from a protein perspective, a lot of these wonderful new crops that I think I think pulses or legumes are only about 2% of our exports at the moment, but legumes and, and, and uh, pulses and that whole family of grains are, are just critical to fixing nitrogen in the soil and building up soil content. And obviously with the Drought Resilience Mission and um, Re Drought Resilience Fund and regional community adaptation and, and maybe structural adjustment, do you see there perhaps some of the bigger, bigger questions perhaps being that, you know, there may be areas of traditional broadacre cropping that need to fundamentally switch crops in order to not just lock more so carbon in the soil, but they're crops that do that by their nature and can also deliver the double benefit of environmental services as well as really high nutrition food? The short answer is yes, we need to do that. Um, the, the long answer and the context around that and where it gets really interesting from a policy point of view in terms of, well, how do you make that happen? It's still related to climate. And, and you know, it's, as I was talking about before, if we can change the economics of regional manufacturing through the availability of cheap renewable energy so that value-adding pulse products onshore 
changes the economics of growing pulse crops so that you can incorporate pulses into a farming system um, more, more profitably, then it's just a win, 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 win. But you cannot just, you know, a part of the problem with getting pulses into farming systems and rotations to this point is they're uneconomic. Even with the, what they do for reducing reliance on synthetic fertilisers and, and building, you know, being better for soil biology and building soil organic carbon, it's still not quite enough to tip the scales in terms of including them uh, reliably and regularly in farming systems. Why are they uneconomic? Because what the, 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 the yield and what you receive per tonne just as a raw product is, is much less than wheat, is that right? Exactly. So just the gross value per hectare that you get from growing a pulse crop generally compared to wheat or barley or canola uh, just doesn't compete. And also uh, they tend to be, although you know this is changing as, as our genetics get better and as the breed effort you know is really focused on they tend to be um or you know less reliable in terms of yield as well more sort of yield variability from year to year um so so there's effort going into improving the agronomics um, but really what will make the the uh, the big picture change is the reliable increase in value for those crops. So interesting, isn't it, in, in the context also of, you know, the narrative around transitions to more flexitarian plant-based diets. You know, traditionally we think of our chickpea burgers or, you know, raw chickpeas for hummus or whatever we're making up. They're quite cheap, you know, and part of the big sustainable food debate is that we should pay more for the food that we eat. And if it's a meat substitute or alternative, and we're not going to call it, you know, go, go there, but maybe we should be paying a whole lot more for chickpeas. <laughs> is that right? And look, you know, that's a, that's a very easy discussion to get into as a farmer and saying, yes, of course, we should be paying more for all this sort of stuff. But it is a genuine issue around the value that we, the, the value of natural capital and how it hasn't been valued um, to this point and how our traditional economic models and economic systems have not reflected the true environmental cost of food production. Now, if they had if the value of the you know additional uh, uh, organic nitrogen and and so on that was incorporated into a farming system was valued into the price of of chickpeas and then the price of hummus um, you might find that it's a lot more expensive i think organic exactly but that then provides the price signal for for farmers to get it into the rotation more um, and you know you, you you get the flow on impact on the environment, but I think that's changing out there. I think that there there is now you know as I talked about before this this quite significant change in the investment environment around delivering sustainability outcomes. Part of that picture is the uh, economic modelling and systems themselves working out how to get that understanding of the value of natural capital. And, and to price natural capital um, a, a, accordingly um, so that uh, natural capital continues to, well, not, not just be maintained, but actually improved over time. Richard, who's leading the way in that space? Is that the sort of work that um, the Commonwealth Department and National Farmers Federation are doing around carbon and biodiversity certification schemes, which is a bit of a response to the EU train coming at us for trade? Is, is Are those sorts of initiatives at the forefront or, or but are there, are there others? Uh, in this space, Anthea, it's actually the finance sector. It's, it's not really policy and it's not, you know, government is catching up on this. And the reason that the finance sector, the reason that the banks are getting really interested in things like natural capital is that now there is this very clear understanding that, you know, unless 
the natural capital base that their loan book is based off is maintained, then they're placing their loan book under future financial risk. So it's a very, you know, it's a very mundane, um, not at all sort of exciting uh, financial calculation that, you know, they suddenly sort of clicked to, oh, hang on, you know, we, our future profitability and our return to shareholders is based on a better understanding of maintaining and improving natural capital um, or, you know, everyone that we're loaning to is just not going to be able to continue to be profitable. So that's that's really where a lot of the R&D and a lot of the focus is coming. And there's some great pilots in NRM regions, I believe, and there was an article about it in the Fin Review recently about biodiversity yep. trading, farm trading or, or farm uh, certification and acknowledgement yeah yeah that's fine. yeah and look and there is some interesting there's some some interesting um uh, government programs and r&d and policy sort of responses that are trying to make sure that there's no barriers to that happening and enabling that environment and creating um you know trying to accelerate the development of all of that yeah look it, it's really um the finance sector and industry that is uh that is accelerate that's leading the, the, the charge in a lot of this yeah no that's fascinating richard just on the you know the big picture technology, data, knowledge, information systems for farmers to manage all these complex challenges and risks. The whole question around understanding whether data, being sure you can access accurate short range and medium range weather forecasting and then then having the confidence to know and to use and capture the value of weather forecasts and indeed for that information to be accurate. Would you like to talk about that? I think there's quite a lot going on in that space. I'd love to talk about that, Anthea, because I am a bit of a technology nerd. I love all this stuff. I I did know that you like technology. Yes. And uh, when I was farming, um, I was very much into uh, digital agriculture and all the sort of new precision agriculture techniques and um so it's something that i've got a real personal interest in and look yeah there there is no question that there's going to have to be accelerated adoption of data systems in particular for um, a lot of this potential that i've been talking about to be realized you know, and, and look, some some of the people listening may well be uh, listening to this, the, the sorts of things I've been talking about, and you know, the, the the corporate involvement and the investment involvement and so on, and going, oh, it's just greenwashing, and we've heard this before. Fossil fuel agribusiness. Yes, I genuinely don't think that that's the case now, and the reason that I say that is because of this direct link to investment performance. You know, there is clear data now that companies that uh, focus on ESG outcomes perform better, uh, and so that's reflected in their share price compared to uh, companies that that don't focus on ESG. So the pressure on companies to um, have robust evidence-based information about how they're delivering sustainability outcomes is going to be one of the increasing drivers, and is already sort of flowing through to the need for all of this to be data-based. You know, it's it's not so. So Australian agriculture for a long time has relied on uh, being clean and green. You know, when we've gone out into the international marketplace, we've been able to dis- distinguish ourselves in that marketplace uh, by having clean and green um, produce. That was a marketing term. There was no evidence behind that. And and be good to get some nutrition data in there too. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and now. All of that requires evidence. You know, it will no longer be good enough to go into the marketplace and just say you're clean and green, say you, you're nutritious. The data needs to be there. Sophistry and spin, Richard. 
We do that quite well. Sorry. Yes, that's right. The, the, the data needs to be there and the data needs to go all the way back to the farm. So having the systems, having the transparency in data, having the data processes that are secure and provide enough confidence that everyone along the supply chain is prepared to contribute, provide data um, in a safe and secure way, that is going to be critical to enable all of this. And what I have to say is that we're a long way from that happening at the moment. Um, we're a long way from having the systems. We're a long way from having the confidence um, in, in sharing data. There's, again, a huge amount of effort in R&D and investment that's going into doing that. Um, it's a, you know, a rapid expansion of, of those uh, areas at the moment, but it will be really, really important. Well, that's fascinating. And it's perhaps, luckily, uh, coincident with a, re a real surge in young people going and studying ag at universities. <laughs> There'll be just as much need for data scientists in agriculture as any other industry, um, but, you know, just generally across the board, the, the technology that's involved in modern agricultural production um, to now actually deliver the sorts of that, that are going to help in and, and enabling the environment to de deliver those sorts of sustainability outcomes that for so long have been you know, in the space of values-based organisations and not necessarily considered to be connected with technology investment, it's all, you know, it's all together now, which for me is extremely exciting because, again, I think that just emphasises um, how vibrant agriculture is about what all the possibilities are. Um, we just need to make sure that we link all those pieces together, you know, the, the, the values-based organisations that have been working on sustainability for, for generations, the investors that can really sort of enable those organisations and understand what true sustainability is, the technology companies that can provide the data systems and the technology and, and the, um, to, to, to link those things up, um, that all then goes towards um, a profitable, sustainable industry. That's a whole new big field of innovation that's just so exciting and as you say so important let's talk now about additional opportunities you've already mentioned quite a few in terms of greater value adding and renewable energy related you know cost reductions to enable that and so on um, new opportunities for grain producers and for and for the farming systems that produce them as they as they plan and respond to climate change and the new market consumer and citizen driven uh, new protein opportunities what, what, what additional opportunities are there? We've sort of we've, we've had one last wide-ranging conversation already about quite a few of them. Um, they sort of push me, pull you around sustainability reporting, uh, transparency, accountability, and also the data that you just referred to. What about the focus on new crops? How are we going on that? Consumer demand, reliable consumer demand, will create opportunity for new product segments and new crops. Uh, and I think we're starting to see that happen. Um, entirely new crops is always going to be a slow burn. You know, you, you can't sort of go instantly to, uh, you know, multi-million tonne crop. Uh, you need the, the to, you need to start small and build up. But I think there is such uh, an interest now, actually more than an interest, there, there, there's such a um, compelling argument and, and demand for variety in um, plant-based foods and, and plant-based proteins. Uh, that it is difficult to see anything but opportunity for for new crops. Um, you know that the, the market will continue to look for that. Anyone that can sort of come up with a reliable new grain-based 
superfood, you know, it's a pretty pretty safe bet, I think, that if, if you can bring that into the into the into the marketplace, particularly if it's a crop that that delivers sustainability dividends um, as well, in terms of either being a, a legume or um, you know a different type of crop that introduces a bit more biodiversity, a bit more animal habitat, um, whatever it might be. So what about native grains in the landscape? Native grains um, are, are a really interesting opportunity. Um, there's obviously some really interesting, highly nutritious, very environmentally positive uh, native grains that we that we you know could be doing more with um, at the moment. The real challenge to developing a, a native grains industry is again, I come back to the, the processing side of things. Um, obviously, we can grow them. They've grown here before. They're native grains. They, they suit our environment. Um, but, uh, you know, they've been adapted to the environment in terms of things like fire um, and so on. That uh, means that actually extracting the grain from them in a way that is efficient and can be processed and, and turned into to products that can actually bought on the supermarket shelf um, there's still quite a lot of work to be done there um, on the processing side of things. But again, look, there, there's some really interesting research effort that's going on at the University of Sydney um, at the moment into to native grains. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm quite excited about that. I think, you know, it'd be absolutely fantastic to see our traditional grains landscape interspersed with pockets of, of native grains and native grasses and providing that biodiverse habitat um, and, and, you know, really just getting that that functional landscape going mm, yeah dr angela patterson and her wonderful work around uh, factory and pantry based uh, systems looking at a whole lot of that angela's absolutely fantastic she was uh, she's an ex-colleague of mine when i was at the university of sydney and and the stuff that she's doing um is is just i, I think really exciting in your the changing landscape of protein reports you talk about you, there it's a big report but there are some key takeaways for australian plant proteins in terms of opportunities uh would you like to talk about those i'm talking about specifically the opportunities stemming from the alternative proteins market for grains, pulses and oilseeds growers. However, they will likely be in the form of a secondary market for off-grade grains rather than a market opportunity for a price premium. Do you still... Should I unpack that a bit? Sure. So, look, that is the current state of play. So, as I talked about before, as if we can get the economic environment around processing, regional processing, uh, and manufacturing changed over time, that equation changes. Um, so that's sort of specifically that comment about the, the current opportunity in relation to, to off-grade grains, um, that's in relation to today's um, processing costs and manufacturing costs. As we continue to develop technology that can take those, and, and you know, I talked before about the reliability of pulse crops um, in terms of a, of a profitable inclusion in, in systems, that is one of the factors of the unreliability is as soon as you go off grade with pulses, the, the, the price just drops, you know, dramatically compared to, to wheat or barley or somewhere where it's more gradual. You know, if you drop out of uh, a human consumption grade, uh, the price discount is enormous. And so if we can develop these different processes of being able to turn those off grades into protein powder or you know, some other kind of, of, of um, product, then that puts a flaw in that market and in terms of growing pulses and really, again, goes back to changing that equation around whether you consider pulses to be a reliable inclusion uh, in, a, in a cropping system. I ask you, what would be uh, the first order 
lowest fruit, most affordable level of processing you'd like to see for those uh, pulses and legumes? And is, it, is it literally as simple as just getting enough affordable energy from renewable sources to do more milling? Certainly, that that would be you know that that would be a very easy low hanging fruit to address. That we're not well. That is more difficult compared to exporting. You know the ridiculous thing of exporting whole grain to another country where electricity and labour is cheaper, and then milling it there and then bringing it back. You know uh, that which seems ridiculous, but it does happen. Richard, new and novel protein sources. Your AFI report about them and the current developments I mentioned at the beginning of our chat are both potentially really, really exciting and also quite controversial to some. <laughs> um, certainly, um, there's been quite a lot of sort of debate about them. There was recently uh, a Senate inquiry into definitions of meat and other animal products, and there's a Food Frontiers conference coming early in 2022, and we could talk lots more about that perhaps for another day to dig, in the, to dig into the whole scene that is um, new and novel foods, and you alluded to it at the beginning of our chat. But just briefly, you, Katie, and AFI, along with Professor Paul Wood, who is, who is an adjunct professor in biotechnology at Monash University, um, I think all in, I don't know if you did it individually or separately, all made really considered contributions to the Senate inquiry into definitions of meat and other animal products. Would you like to highlight particular issues or messages you think uh, can be really useful for people who might be approaching and thinking about the whole new novel or alternative uh, protein space for the first time? And, of course, there's a whole distinction between plant-based and animal-based. So, look, that Senate inquiry is really about the labelling um, aspect of uh, new protein products and alternative protein products. So the inquiry was really trying to get to the bottom of whether a, a lack of clarity in labelling was a threat to traditional animal-based protein to some extent. You know, the people were basically being tricked into buying uh, plant protein when they thought they were buying animal protein and whether that's going to be an issue. Into the shape of a chop. Exactly. Yep, got a picture of a chicken on the cover, you think you're buying chicken. So, and, and our position, and, and you know, both in, in that uh, Senate submission but also the, the report that we did on, on alternative proteins, there will be more demand for animal protein going forward than we can possibly produce. Uh, it, you know, as, as the world gets um, wealthier and the population continues to grow, the demand for animal protein will continue to grow and um, we will not be able to produce the amount of animal protein that we need to produce sustainably to be able to supply that. So plant protein has to be part of the solution. Um, we have to continue to uh, work out how to produce plant protein products sustainably and, and grow that market. So we just don't fundamentally believe, we don't believe that the evidence shows that the data is there to show that alternative proteins are an existential threat to animal protein. It is not a zero-sum game. When people eat alternative protein, it is not a one-for-one -one reduction in animal protein. The protein market is growing overall. On that basis, uh, we just don't think that the labelling issue is, is particularly the, the, the issue should, that should be focused on in terms of that fundamental supply demand. But, and, and, and this is an important caveat and I think a really clear distinction that we make, what is a threat, not just to animal agriculture, but to agriculture generally, is misinformation, is some of the, uh, is the threat that disruptive and unnecessary legislation 
that is prompted by disinformation and consumer sentiment that is brought on onto agriculture. And unfortunately, there are some companies and, and some activist organisations and some in this space that are trying to promote and advocate for alternative proteins that are promoting misinformation and untruths about agriculture generally, you know, not, not just um, animal protein. That doesn't help anyone and it certainly adds to the risk that the response to that is um, disruptive regulation trying to curb the production of animal protein, which we think is, um, you know, dangerous because, as I said before, we need all sources of protein. The, the, the demand for protein is going to be so big, we need sustainable animal protein as well as sustainable plant protein. So that was really the, the, the premise of our Senate submission, that labelling should be factual. Labelling should not propagate mistruths or misinformation. Labelling is not going to be, you know, consumers are not being tricked into buying plant protein when they think they're buying animal protein. And even if that was happening to some extent, it's not a fun existential threat to, to the animal protein industry. You spoke earlier about data and sustainability, you know, rigorous reporting and all the rest, information about nutrition and information about who, who the manufacturers, who the, not who the owners are. I think in this space is really interesting because some of that critique, misinformation, but often just other values is also coming from deep concern about big food and big meats move into this space and control of the space, I think, isn't it? I detest the term big food and big meat. I thought you might. <laughs> no, but I mean, that's I spoke about that discourse is coming from concerns about that and there are legitimate concerns in that space. What, what, what does it mean? Yeah. But I suppose diversity, diversity in all things, in biodiversity, in foods, in diets, and also in economic scales of production and ownership and sovereignty and so forth. That can't be it, can it? And, and, and don't get me wrong, I don't in any way detest the discussion about corporate agriculture. It's a really important discussion that we need to have. Um, I think you stick big in front of everything and it is immediately just putting um, a perception, uh, a forced perception. There is no um, fundamental system of business or production, big or small, that you can make a blanket statement around whether they are sustainable or unsustainable. I'm making a blanket statement about transparency. Yes, exactly. And, and that's sort of the point that I'm getting to that, you know, that, and that's why labelling is so important. You know, labelling is critically important that it is truthful, whether it's coming from, you know, huge industry or small industry. Um, we need to be clear, we need to have confidence and we need to have transparency around understanding the production systems um, and the environment, environmental footprint and the impact of, of what we buy. Richard, just, you know, in terms of bringing the, the broad acre challenges and the biodiversity uh, NRM type, you know, mixed use uh, agriculture to get more carbon and biodiversity into farms and landscapes, we haven't spoken about nuts, nuts and yeah, is that something you, you your work touches on? Ah, uh, yeah. Nuts and silver culture on farms is what I'm thinking of. Yeah, mixed. Uh, so look, the, the yes, I mean you, you're you're talking specifically about the expansion in almonds, I'd imagine. No, 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 no. I actually let's not go there today. No, no, I'm talking about a bit like native grains can be in the cropping system or in the landscape. Uh, nuts and uh, other 
fabulous food, tree-based food, silviculture, can be in a cropping system or they can be in the landscape and dispersed in a mixed-use farm. That's where I was coming from. <laughs> okay, no, tree, tree crops. A lot of potential there and it's really interesting to see, you know, for instance, the expansion of the macadamia industry and some of the sugar production areas um, and the realisation of, of opportunities there. And, and I think there's a huge potential for um, more tree cropping, perennial crops, um, uh, you know, protected cropping, intensive cropping, um, the, the, the diversity in, you know, the potential for diversity in, in perennial cropping is really big. I will come back to almonds just briefly. So the, so the macadamia expansion into sugarcane areas, we, into wet environments, into more reliable environments, you know, seems to be really sound. The expansion of the almond industry into re- really what are quite arid areas using uh, water, using irrigation water for what is a permanent crop, that is much more problematic and is where, you know, when you when you look at the scarce water resource that we have and, you know, the, these huge, huge investments in, in water for crops that need to be irrigated every year, that I, I question whether that is really what we should be um, striving towards in Australia in our environment. That's a good note to end on. I can't disagree with you at all on that. Um, you know, in terms of our natural capital countries importing and exporting their externalities elsewhere, the armoured industry directly comes out of California and their problematic um, irrigation history and future, doesn't it? Th- thanks so much for sharing your time and insights such broad ranging complex issues and so to be, it's such a privilege to have the opportunity to speak with you to map out some of those a really great conversation thank you Richard do you have any further comments you'd like to make or or perhaps even just call outs to listeners I've, I've really enjoyed the discussion Anthea it's one of the true pleasures of my job is that we uh, get to to look at such a wide range of really interesting things agriculture is such an interesting spot well I mean I've always thought it's interesting obviously but you know particularly at the moment there's, there's such interesting stuff going on yeah it's fascinating and yeah Yes, look, you know, if if uh, your listeners have found it uh, this discussion interesting and uh, they'd like to to support the sort of work we do at the AFI, um, please jump on our website, farminstitute.org.au. Uh, there's a range of options there uh, for how you might be able to uh, to support our work if you feel so inclined. Thanks very much, Richard. Great to speak with you. Thanks, Anthea. Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation offered some nourishing food for thought. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at nourishing underscore matters and on Facebook at Nourishing Matters to Chew On. If you like what you hear and would like to support us, you can buy us a coffee or donate at givenow.com.au backslash nourishing or give us a rating and a review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of Podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.